Welcome to the latest episode of Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. We are releasing this episode, unfortunately, after the sad news of the passing of Chris Boucher. Yes, so before we go and have a chat about Volcano, we wanted to just have a few moments to acknowledge the passing of a man who was... Look, if you were to make a list of the people most important to Blake 7, Chris Boucher would certainly be in the top five, arguably in the top two. And look, I could make a case for number one. I would think so as well. Well, he is the one constant behind the camera, so... Yeah, absolutely. Look, as we've discussed in the show, I'm a big fan of Terry Nation's scripts and what Terry Nation did. I think he is undersold in terms of his role in mm. Blake 7 and also Doctor Who. But when it comes to that proper universe building, when it comes to that character dialogue that we all <laughs> know and love, and, and those things <laughs> that I think really elevated Blake 7 above being just another sci-fi show, and that thing that, look, we can spend an hour, an hour and a half every episode and talk in proper depth about, a lot of that depth does come from Chris Boucher. Well, indeed. I mean, we have a segment. What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Absolutely. And really, that relationship between Paul Darrow and Chris Boucher is one of the things that just worked so well. And we've spoken many times about the relationship between them and sitting down over a drink at the pub and working out how can we spice up Avon's dialogue and what, what sort of cool lines can we give? And it pays off. Those anecdotes after they both watched the you know Saturday Night Western or whatever and the phone had gone like, oh, that was a really cool line. We should give that to Avon. Absolutely. But even just beyond that, Boucher's ability to write characters with very small flourishes of dialogue and make them seem like real people is something that elevates the show. He spoke in the interviews about how carefully he crafted his dialogue and how poetically he would try to craft his dialogue. So when you do get some of those big memorable speeches like Avon's monologue in Star One, some of those lines in Blake, some of the lines, look, we haven't got there yet, but we're going to get there soon in Rumours of Death. Yep. They were stuff that he took the time to really craft and really put the effort in to make them stand the test of time. And when you get actors like Gareth Thomas and Paul Darrow and Michael Keating particularly that he had an affiliation with and an affinity with. And they deliver those lines as intended. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And beyond that, there are lots of examples, and we'll reference here some of our posts from our friend Making Black 7, where there would be scripts where other writers would come in and they will put in some dialogue or some techno babble, and Boucher would cross it out and you know, write in spatials or you know whatever the correct term might be and just correct that. And that universe that he does build up and that correct terminology that flows all the way really from the start... Is Chris Boucher. It is Chris Boucher. I think for me, as we said, he really, in a lot of ways, he became Blake Seven. I mean, yes, Terry Nation's name on the credits and all the first season all have Terry Nation's name as a writing credit. But I think as season one goes on, you start to see Chris Boucher's influence more. Absolutely. And I think as we've discussed previously, once you get into season two and you get into that second half of the season... Blake Seven, by then, this is Chris Boucher's show. No, absolutely. The direction of the characters really is down to him. Obviously, he's working with David Maloney in Series 2 and 3. He's working with Villa Lorimore in Season 4. Yep. But he is that constant that he's saying where the show is going to go, where the characters are going to go. Characters that would have been written off if Terry Nation had his way survived because Boucher and Maloney decide to keep them and and others go because they don't think they can use them as well. Mm. 
The final Blake Seven point I just want to make is that, of course, he did write a number of episodes. Of course. And some of them are absolute classics and absolute favourites. We haven't got to them all yet, especially his work in Season 3, which is yes, really good. Yes, I know your favourite episode is coming up, and it is a Chris Boucher episode. I, of course, got to wax lyrical about Star 1 and his work on that a little earlier. Absolutely, which everybody agreed was just fantastic. Even scripts like Shadow and Weapon, which we've said were good but not great and mm. sometimes had some imperfections more from production point of view than anything else certainly for weapon yes even weapon for all the faults in that sparkling dialogue just amazing dialogue the same with shadow so look some really good episodes and look, not to mention blake of course although i believe his favorite episode of all the ones he wrote i think was actually death watch which we are still to get to yeah look we'll have a lot to say when we get to that in a few months time mm. but no i have heard that and i can totally understand why I think it's quite an underrated episode. We should also mention that Chris Boucher did some work outside of Blake 7. Of course. We are, as you know, Doctor Who fans, and he wrote three, in my opinion, belter scripts for Doctor Who. Yep. The Robots of Death, The Face of Evil, and The Image of the Fendal. Now, Robots of Death is often regarded by fans, particularly of our vintage, as a proper top five for sure. Doctor Who story. It is an absolute classic Fan opinion is probably a little more divided on the the other two. But certainly I think they're both very strong and I think they're fantastic dialogue as well. For sure, likewise. Of course, we probably should also mention, I guess, his work on Star Cops, which was a series he did a little later than Blake 7. I think he would have been the first to admit that that was something of a troubled production. And he, he has also said there's things he'll do differently if he's had his time again. Yes, I think actually including putting his name forward to produce the thing himself. Yeah, absolutely. But look, the concepts in Star Cops is absolutely fantastic. It was very original, very different. The characters, again, really, really work. It does struggle a little bit, but look, there's a lot for him to be very, very proud of in that as well. We should make notice, I think most other commentators have picked up on it. Unfortunately, his passing, he was the last surviving Doctor Who writer from the 60s or 70s. That's true, yes. And look, there are still a number of people involved with Blake 7 around, and we're very thankful for that. But again, there are starting to pass and he is i think one of the last of the main names from behind the camera yeah no absolutely so our links to that past are going but look that's a sad note to end on so let's end on a positive and i just want to say chris boucher is one of my absolute favorite writers not just of blake seven but of television and sci-fi generally i think he's up there with the greats i don't think he got the recognition that he probably no deserved he's up there for me with your stephen moffats and your robert holmes and your russell davies Aaron Sorkins, I think he had that level of just witty, creative dialogue. I'm a huge fan. I'm sorry he's gone, but what a legacy he's left us, and we're going to continue to celebrate that on Spaceball. We are. Thanks very much for your work. And now, Volcano. My son, the animal rules you. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. This is episode 31, Volcano. Yes. Written by Alan Pryor. He's back. He's back. Directed by Desmond McCarthy. He's new. He is a new director. First broadcast on the 21st of January, 1980. The ratings, a healthy 9 million, down only slightly from the 9.4 the week before. Hmm. Richard. Yes. (laughs) 
I'll ask for your views on Volcano, because this is mine to take us through, so you can lead us off. We'll have a bit of a discussion. So, what did you think of it? I'd be honest and say this is one I haven't watched for a while, but look, my memory was that it was pretty ordinary. My memory turned out to be correct, I think. I will say, if you want to indulge in a bit of headcanon, look, there are some really interesting hints here about the sort of state of the B7 universe as at now, or post the war, and we will maybe touch on what the war actually means. But, yeah, I I have to say, I found this one pretty uninspiring. Yeah, I walked into this one, again, having not watched it in a very long time. It's Mm -hmm. one that I would tend to skip over if I'm doing a bit of a rewatch. My memory is that it is the weakest of this season, and I walked in sort of thinking this is probably a contender for a podium finish for worst of the series. I must admit, watching it back, I... Look, it is a weaker episode. Yes, it is the weakest of the three we've seen so far this season. Yes, is, is it going to end up as the worst of the season? Look, we're doing this we're openly. We're only three episodes so in. We're so. only three episodes in, so I'm not going to sit there and just start smashing it. Particularly because I did find there were some concepts in there that were actually quite interesting. Yep. This is one of those scripts where I think the concept on which they sold the script was actually quite interesting and worked quite well. Mm-hmm. I don't think the final draft does justice to those concepts. No. And that's something we need to look at. And I think that the direction is abysmal. Yes, that was one note I had, yes. All of which doesn't make for a great episode. But look, this is Blake 7. Mm-hmm. There is some cool stuff going on in there. Yep. There are some good moments that we enjoyed. Yes. And there are some things that are worthy of discussion. It had Jackal and Pierce and Paul Darrow in it. So. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and look, that, that makes it great. Look, even Bad Blake 7 is great television. It still has Jackal and Pierce and Paul Darrow in it. <laughs> That's so. right. And so, yeah, look, as you said, whilst neither of us thought this was a particularly strong episode, we're, we're not here to just spend an hour sniping at it. No, for sure. And certainly the notes I've had, like I've seen your notes as well, are really about diving down into some of these ideas and yep. talking about what its strengths are, what its good ideas are, and where it didn't work. And that's mm. what we're here to do, because, you know, we do love the series, and yes. we're here to have some fun, not to smash it. So let's dive in. Mm-hmm. I don't feel this is an episode that really works as sort of moving through plot strands so no. much as working through themes and concepts. And so that's how I've divided up our walkthrough for the episode this week. The first thing that I think we need to talk about is the crew. Mm -hmm. That is the crew of the Liberator. So let's just work through a few points. And maybe I'll just make a couple of general points and then get you to to respond there, Richard. Clearly some time has taken place since we last met the crew in Power Play. Tarrant and Dana are now active parts of the crew. And in fact, they can go down on missions without having their hands held by (laughs) by a more experienced member of the crew. We mentioned very quickly that we're looking for Blake. We don't mention Jenna, and we'll talk about that. And there's already this idea that there's been a galactic war. It's seen that this is different from the intergalactic war, and we're dealing with the fallout. Yes. Where do you see the crew being at this point? Yeah, I think, firstly, we are going to go probably into a bit of own, you know, headcanon or individual interpretations of canon here, perhaps. But, yeah, very clearly this is some time after power play, and I think probably some months. I think so too. Most likely. Tarrant and Dana are the two going down to the surface of Obsidian. Tarrant makes the point that he goes because he doesn't trust Dana. I don't know what that says about his relationship with the other three, but I sort of took the inference perhaps that the reason he goes with Dana if he doesn't trust her is he probably suspects that if anything goes wrong, Avon would probably save Dana and thus by inference come to assist him. Perhaps. I also got the feeling that at this point we're seeing those first tensions of 
Avon's vision for the crew. Yes. Taren's vision Terrence. for the crew. Yes. And Taren wants to be down at the coalface directing yep. where this all goes. For sure. As far as the idea with the war is concerned, yeah, I think there is a distinction being made here between the intergalactic war and then what happened afterwards. Yeah, so just to make the point, Hauer actually describes the galactic war as being proof of humanity's aggression. Mm. Now, you can't call the intergalactic war where basically we defended our civilization no. from attack to be that. So it does imply that there was this civil war as the Federation collapsed. Yeah, I think so. Look, humanity is, you know, they've defeated the alien invasion, but now they're turning on each other to fight over the wreckage. Yeah, central um, control's gone. Yeah. The president of the High Council's been replaced by Serverland. There'll be all these competing factions vying for control. Instead of that idea, which probably would be Howard's version of the universe, that humanity is bigger and we should all be working together to rebuild and ensure that the maximum benefit is felt by all type thing. No, in fact, it's just disintegrated into these warring factions. Yeah, and Villa even notes that there were Federation survivors looking for bases, yeah. all, all that sort well, of thing. Well, you would so. think, you know, as we said, the, the Federation's collapsed, Star One is gone, and we were told in Star One what destruction that would wrought on Federated worlds. They'd lose their climate control, their production, all that sort of stuff. So you would see that this would be general lawlessness. There'd be pirate groups there would be probably Federation commanders who have usable ships and men under their control who would try and carve out their own little pieces of territory and that sort of thing. There'd be random groups just attacking defenceless communities and stuff. I mean, Villa even mentions cannibalism uh, on some of the worlds, which shows that society probably has broken down. I guess we'll probably come back to some of these ideas, but clearly this is a very bad place to be at the moment. Yes. Talking about the crew a bit more specifically... We're still learning about who Tarrant is. Mm-hmm. There's the discussion behind Tarrant's back when he's down on Obsidian yep. between Avon and, and Villa particularly. Are you going to let me in on the secret? You wouldn't understand it if we did. My classification might be grade four ignorant, but I'm not stupid. I bought that classification from a friend at the testing centre. I didn't want to be a space captain, now did I? And I was right. They all ended up getting killed, didn't they? Tarrant survived. Oh, yes. Tarrant says he was a space captain. But then he says a lot of things, and you don't have to believe it all, do you? I'd be more inclined to believe that he was a captain than that you could have been. Well, never mind about me, but it's Tarrant you should be worried about, and not just because he's been out of contact for an hour. Howard notes that he acts like a space captain, so I think that this idea that Tarrant is sort of like, well, I briefly went to the Academy, but the Federation wasn't for me, and I've always been a lone ranger and all the rest of it, is looking like it could be a little bit of spin and he probably did serve as a Federation officer for quite some time. Yeah, they want to create that ambiguity around Tarrant's character. I think this is something we will come back to as we get further through the season. Yes. If you think of power play, look, Tarrant's goals are clearly aligned with Avon's. They both want to survive, they want to stop Clegg and his men getting their hands on the ship. But beyond that, we don't actually know anything about Tarrant's motivations or whatever. So... There is still that question mark about who he really is. Yeah, and the fact that the script has the ambiguity coming both from his fellow crew members and from third parties observing him, I think shows that they really are leaning into that. That's an interesting idea. We get a line that's very Alan Pryor, but almost a throwaway line where Villa claims Mm. that he bought his classification. I'm intrigued about that. It does sort of lean a bit into that way back 
creepy villa. It does a bit, that remnant of that more cunning villa. He's worked out that the Delta Grades, beyond being suppressed, nobody really takes that much notice of them. So he could go and be a professional thief without anybody really paying him much attention, perhaps. It's a nice little line that I think doesn't really go anywhere in the episode, but is worth noting. Avon and Callie sort of immediately just poo-poo his ideas. But he is shown to be correct. That inherent distrust, he is shown to be correct that Dana and Tanner have run into trouble. Yes, his reading of people is actually quite good. So we're still seeing some of those remnants and far less frequently seen cunning aspect of Villa's personality, which is good. Yeah. Blake. Yes. It's said overtly that they could spend a long time chasing down the rumours they've had about Blake. I'm going to ask the question to you, is Avon giving up too easily here? Is it convenient for him to not be able to find Blake? Yeah, clearly there are a lot of hints and false leads. They make the point about we could spend the rest of our lives with just the stuff we know so far. And you probably have to ask the question, is this Serverland setting more traps for them? Is it Blake actually trying to contact them? Or is it just people trolling them, basically, or a mix of all three? Or just the legend of Blake. Yes, is around. So there is a scenario probably that he is constantly on the move because he knows the Federation are probably still looking for him. So maybe the crew have come close a couple of times, but he's gone by the time they get there. Probably also still recovering from his injuries, perhaps. I will make the note here that no one even mentions Jenna. Yes. At this point. So I don't know whether that's meant to imply that her trail's gone cold or something has happened in the gap that the crew have just given up on her. I suppose probably for Avon in terms of looking for Blake. Avon really has finally got what he wanted. He's actually got control of the ship. He's now potentially got a rival perhaps in Tarrant. But whilst there is probably some loyalty to Blake, or he does care about Blake on some level, there is probably a limit really to how hard he he is actually going to look. Yeah, and the note that I had is that from Avon's perspective, he is basically on the deal. Mm. Control Star One has been destroyed. Yep. And the deal was when Star One is gone, if he's finished, Blake... I get the ship. Yes, that's right. So Avon, probably in his mind, is feeling, well, we brought down the Federation, we did what we said, mm. I've got the ship, and I suspect maybe he feels that for Kelly and Villa's sake, he can't give up instantly, mm. but maybe there is a sense where Avon's just quietly leading to them, you know what, we're not going to find Blake, let's just yep. stop trying. And maybe there is also an element that if Blake really wanted to be found, he probably could be found. Yes, he probably could. You then probably lead into some of that stuff about Tarrant saying they want a base and whatever, which maybe shows a change of direction. I mean, is, is a base really something the Liberator crew would need at this stage? Yes, it's something that's only come up once before. In another Alan Pryor's script. Yes, in Alan Pryor's Horizon, this idea that they need someone to operate out of, it doesn't really work in this episode, I think. It's, it's actually one of the weaker parts of this. We need a planet as a home base, somewhere that's not been ruined by the war. And we need recruits. This might do. You're situated in a very important strategic position. Obsidian, this is to be your base, temporarily, if you were to agree, naturally. And what would you offer us for this favour? A portion of any spoils, and there will be spoils once we're strong enough to take them. You were once a Federation space captain, you say? Yes, I was for a time, until I deserted. You still sound like one. When you listen to that, 
that doesn't sound like anything we're used to the crew doing. And I suspect this has got a lot more to do with what Tarrant wants than what the others want. And I even get the feeling Dana's sort of sitting there watching that speech going, hang on, when did this come up? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, whether they just want somewhere quiet for some R&R or something. Because, I mean, the point's made several times that they've got the most advanced ship in the galaxy. Because, I mean, the way he's talking, it specifically suggests piracy. It does. Whether that's his angle to try and ingratiate himself with Howard, because at this point we don't really know very much about the Pyroans, this is something he thinks Howard might want to hear. Yeah, maybe. That, that we're strong enough to protect you and we're strong enough to offer you something valuable in exchange for us parking the Liberator here occasionally. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in contrast, you could kind of imagine Avon taking the view, well, now I've got rid of Blake, I don't have to go on these crazy life-threatening adventures every week. No. I, I don't need to put my life at risk. I can just float around the Liberator and be wealthy. Pretty much. And, and Villa, although I think Villa would be more sympathetic towards wanting to get Blake back, Villa isn't going to put himself in danger if he doesn't have to. And so you're sort of left with Callie and Dana and Taryn's thrown in the middle of there. And, and it is that thing of, without Blake saying, this is what we're doing this week, what do they do this week? And Avon's mm. answer is probably as little as possible, which <laughs> is the natural expression of the character, but it's not very good for a drama show. No, it's not. So there are those difficulties. And look, I'll just flag here, we will talk about the uh, outside universe, real world yes. implications afterwards. of, of, of yep. Blake leaving afterwards, but that's the in-universe stuff. But just to tie this all up, it's worth noting that the script does give some justification and validation to Avon giving up on Blake because it is overtly confirmed that Servalan planted this rumour yes. to try and trap the Liberator crew. I guess probably just uh, expanding on that a little bit, continually above thought about elapsed time and the state of play in the universe and whatever, she obviously has had time to install herself as president She's found some people who will follow her. She's quashed whatever resistance, maybe from the old guard or whatever, and she's starting to put together some sort of fighting force. She is now at the point, well, if I could get my hands on that ship, and maybe even Aurak, this is going to really set me up to what is it she says she wants to establish her law on the galaxy. Yes, absolutely. And for that reason, Servalan and the Liberator crew will continue to intersect, Yes, but now more at her urging rather than theirs. However, before we go down that path, let's talk about Obsidian. So we arrive down on the planet Obsidian, which has a scary sounding name it's lots of stock footage of volcanoes which isn't quite kind of works it kind of works although it's not really how volcanoes themselves tend to work and as you know richard we're very dedicated to this podcast and we like to do a bit of research so last month in order to plan for this i did go to honolulu (laughs) i did visit their large active volcano just to get an impression of what this actually is like does that mean we have to set up a patreon now to come (laughs) Your expedition? No, no, no patrons. All done on my own dime. So I I did visit an active volcano in Hawaii just to research for this podcast. And uh, 
that's not what I think volcanoes look like, <laughs> is my main takeaway. Well, I mean, look, I guess... It's what people think of them looking yes. like. Yes, I was probably going to make the point, like, late 70s, very early 80s BBC, you know, lights and a few pyrotechnics is probably about as good as you're going to get. So. Yes, I'm being a bit cheeky there. It's not a bad little setup of, okay, this planet has a volcano. They do what they can there. It's established very quickly that one of them knew Dana's father. Yep. So we do get that call back. We do actually see her as an ongoing character. And that's obviously their in when they get down there, for sure. We learn very quickly there is a volcano. <laughs> the volcano. There is the volcano. It is not the planet of volcanoes. It is a <laughs> volcano. We then meet the Pyroans. I've got another question for you here, Richard. It's a deliberately yes. loaded one, but I, I mean it seriously. Stop <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I can't decide if the actors playing the Pyroans throughout this plot are bad actors, or they've been given some very bizarre direction. At the end of this, I was kind of of the opinion Desmond McCarthy might be the new George Benton Foster, because there is that same feeling of that'll do in a lot of the shots and the way this is staged, or whether it is just a case, well, I've done what it says on the page, let's move on. Yeah, I get the feeling that there is perhaps an attempt here to portray the Pyroans' pacifism as being as much biological or chemically induced or, or, yeah. or, or indoctrinationally induced. And that's had an effect on their personalities, which is why they're very sort of placid and, placid yeah. and dull and, and speak in that really flat way. <laughs> Unfortunately, those are also the characteristics of bad acting. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a little bit hard for me to judge, but it, either way, it doesn't really sell it and it doesn't make for good viewing. No. I do wonder if Michael Goff maybe left this off the resume <laughs> in years to come. But Yes, because obviously he is not a terrible actor. He's naturally a very good actor, but this is far from his best work. Oh, no. We very quickly established that we do not allow weapons on Obsidian. So, these are your friends. Where are our guns? We do not allow offensive weapons on Obsidian. So, very quickly, it's clear we're doing the Planet of the Pacifists. Which, unfortunately, again, I apologise for my cynicism, is in my mind second only to the planet of women <laughs> when it comes to bad sci-fi cliches. <laughs> Fortunately, we haven't yet in Blake 7 done a planet of women. I wonder if we will. No, the prison in space meets Blake 7. Or Angel 1 for next gen. Oh, or, yeah. Yes, never good, but planet of pacifists no. usually does not work out well either. My son, like the rest of us, Hates war, conflict, aggression. Who doesn't? But as a galactic war has just demonstrated, aggression seems to be programmed into the human psyche. It can be programmed out, perhaps. Would that be wise, even if it could? Would Homo sapiens be able to live without conflict? Wouldn't he just die from lack of excitement? We have not found it so. It is our belief that every man is at war with himself. His reason is at war with his instinct his animal and his spiritual natures clash together and the brain of homo sapiens has developed too much for the animal to bear you mean your people have become passive because you've reduced their brain power is that it on the contrary we have taught them peace from the cradle we see dana who's young and aggressive she immediately pushes back against howard's ideas and says that well there'd be no excitement without aggression this is a bad thing Tarrant takes a slightly different tack. He seems to make it more that the planet of the naive hippies. 
their pacifism basically means they're stupid. Well, I'm surprised no one's actually landed and taken you over. He also actually mentions a galactic war as if it's something he thinks they wouldn't be aware of. So, I think that's just, again, leading into this idea that they've completely dropped out from society. Yeah. yeah. So let's lead into this, because I think this is actually one of the more interesting ideas of the script. And again... I don't know if this is us reading stuff in that isn't there or, or not. Or trying to find something. Or trying to find something. Or, or, or genuinely it is in there, it just doesn't quite come through clearly in the script. There are lots of interesting hints in here. For example, Howard is described as the first citizen, which has a very sort of revolutionary France or even communist mm. sort of tones where, oh, no, no, we have no leader, we just have the first citizen. Yes. There's also a lot of very, some subtle, some not so subtle, comments from Hauer about the shock therapy, there are implications about what happens if they find members of their society yep. who are aggressive. Is Hauer a democratically elected leader who is working with his community? Or is he a crazy despot or even a cult leader? A cult leader, yeah. I think he could easily be either. You know, attract some like-minded followers and brainwash them into total subservience. I do think there is a very definite undertone of the people having no say over their lives and how the society functions. Having said that, we don't actually really see how the society functions. And it is potentially just a case of how are imposing his beliefs on them and moulding them into his ideal model society. The Liberation book, I mean, we haven't given them a shout out for a little while, but they make the point that it's possible the Perones are maybe survivors of some planetary conflict and they know they're all dying and this is their way to atone for their previous aggression before they die out yeah i certainly took a number of hints as being that Hauer is at some level despotic mm. and i actually would have liked to have seen that built up a bit more at the expense of some of the other plot lines we're going to talk about shortly and if this was a terry nation script particularly an early sort of blake terry nation script I think that this would have been a different iteration of that authoritative world. You know, we, we saw in the early Terra Nation stuff, you got the military authoritarianism, yep. you got the religious authoritarianism. So this is what happens when you overthrow Brian Blesson. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. And, you know, is this not so much religious as cultist yep. authoritarianism? And I, I think yep. that Terra Nation would have leaned into that a lot more, and earlier Blake Seven would have done it as well. Probably, yes. Whereas here it is kind of just being treated as the sci-fi planet of the pacifist cliche and their whole society is three people one of whom is a woman who does needlework and a really bad android yes i think we'll come back to the android we perhaps. will be coming back to the android um, I, I guess there is also the question probably of how long the pyroans have been there there's that scene on the liberator where they're talking about the federation went and assessed the world and that's a long time ago and then they didn't do any follow-up i don't know whether that's kind of hinting at the fact that the Pyroans scared the Federation survey team off as well. But there's then also the stuff about how Howe was at the Science Academy or whatever it was with Dana's father. So there is that idea that this is probably only something that sprung up maybe in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's not quite as well developed as it could be, which is a shame because, as I say, I think the undertones here are genuinely quite interesting. Mm. Now, Howard does give a little speech here about Homo sapiens, which I'll play for you now. But unlike your father, I lost faith in that sort of scientific development. I think that Homo sapiens has reached a point where further technological development is useless. And you were at that point? 
I believe we are. A little while after that speech, we get the comment about Bersha, his son, being at risk. Mm. And he was allowed to develop. That's right. Is the implication there that if Bersha was not the leader's son and we're going to have this experiment, he would have been quietly bumped off? Or exiled or something. Yeah, yeah. they don't allow these kids to live. Just before I get your take further, Richard, I also just want to play in this exchange between Hauer and his son. I have not renounced the theory of peace. Servalan is more powerful than these people. Tomorrow or the next day they will go and Servalan will be back with her battle fleet. Guided here again by you, no doubt. It's very plain what has happened, Hauer. My choice was to make Servalan our ally. I never took these people seriously, and nor should you, father. I don't want to die. You have taken the vow. What choice did I have? What choice have any of us had? You've turned us all into peace puppets. We're at anybody's mercy, and I tell you, Servalan will return. Then the vow will be put into effect. That happens just before Howard executes his son, basically for having a bad day. Yeah, well, that, that actually was the note I had. I, I think the fact that we see that Howard is prepared to order his son's death clearly shows that you can push the envelope too far. So whether they do sort of just quietly, I don't know, they don't respond to the persistent therapy, so they ship them off somewhere or just sort of quietly... Euthanize them. Yes, or something. I don't know. I mean, it probably, I guess, depends on whether you see how as a having created the perfect society or whether he's just sort of some crazy cult leader. The idea that he executes his own son really almost on the turn of a dime. Mm. Yeah, just there really is no justification for that. That, to me, really does lead into how it's just absolutely crazy. And this is a cult. Yeah, and certainly I think it reinforces that idea from the early discussion point that none of this is by consent. No, I think so. I think that is where we're left as an audience. And the final point I'll just make here is we get these justifications from Hauer that, well, the civilization's dying anyway, we're all dying. But he never explains that. He never backs it up. And I even wondered if we even got a bit of Munchausen syndrome in here and he's just telling them that there are to get them to do his whim because he doesn't back it up. No, it's hard because, as we said a couple of times, we never really get any sort of sense of how this society actually works. We see a few technicians who are clearly monitoring the volcano and, as you said a minute ago, there's just this random woman doing needlework. Do they keep suppressing the aggression they have some sort of ritualized sport or something that they do to work the anger out or is it they all just sit around listening to soft music pursuing artistic activities we see Howard at a couple of points being given a drink and a pill so I don't know whether that's a suppressant or something to keep the animalistic urges down or is there genuinely some sickness that they all have is this a radiation treatment or something yeah it's, it's left undefined but as you say it was defined enough by the script they filmed how are taking that medication. Yes. But just to bring it back as well to the comment I made earlier about the direction and the performances, whilst Michael Goff is clearly a much better actor than the other Pyroans, he can deliver his dialogue in a much more naturalistic way and it all sort of works, I don't get the feeling that he and the director have worked out themselves what sort of character Hauer is. And Michael Goff, frankly, just plays him at a very basic level without really investing much nuance in there. Yeah, you kind of get the impression that maybe he's looked at the script, this is just two days' work, I'm just going to go and take the cash and move on to something better. Yeah, very, very possibly. Which is a shame because I think, just to repeat myself again, 
this is potentially the most interesting stuff in the episode. Mm. I don't think it really delivers on the premise. A couple of notes I had just quickly before we move on. Where he orders the death of Bershar, I got the impression that's the point where Howard maybe realises that his dream is unattainable and that he loses it at that point. It's okay, now I'm just going to burn everything to the ground. Humanity is no longer worthy of his efforts. Yes. I certainly took it as that. After that execution, he really sort of does collapse emotionally. He says to Taron Dana, look, just basically bugger off. Don't talk to me anymore. Just go. I'm just going to sit here and have some quiet reflection, listen to some chamber music, and then push the big red button, yeah, basically. Just, just massacre my entire people. Yeah. It also is left a bit ambiguous at the end, really, how they're all going to die. I mean, does the volcano just spew out endless radiation and turn the planet into a nuclear wasteland? Or is it more something like the Doctor Who story Inferno, where it's just going to continue erupting, basically, until the entire planet is engulfed? I certainly took it as being that the volcano would become a massive Krakatoa-style volcano and just wipe out the civilization. Yep. I mean, it is necessary for us to note that perhaps we should take Howard at face value, Mm. and that they did believe that death was better than living under the Federation, and therefore that's why they committed mass suicide. I don't think that's where the script is leaning. And I don't think that's where the story is going. And I don't think that would have been the most interesting take. But we'll come back to that at the very end of the discussion. And we'll now move on to the Federation. Serverland has a nice new shiny command ship. Yes. I wonder if that's some sort of prototype she's whipped off the production line or captured alien ship or something. It certainly very quickly establishes that this is no longer the Supreme Commander in her space station. No. It's her on the move, wandering around with a disparate set of forces. Yes, she is taking a very active hand in what her forces are doing. Yes, very quickly we get... The feeling that her crew and her officers are very unpolished. Yep. Mori isn't shaven. He's mm. not presented like you'd expect an officer to present. He is not scared of Servalan. No. He's not intimidated by her, per se. And he's not doing this because he's a career officer. And these are my orders. Again, it's very quickly established, as you say, Servalan is operational in this episode. Mm. She's going into a lot of detail, a lot more than you would expect a president to do. And Mori clearly basically is in this for what he can get out of it. For sure. And it is a transactional arrangement with Servalan. Yeah, which raises the point, has she bolstered her forces by hiring mercenaries? Or is he maybe somebody sort of like a, a section leader Clegg type individual who's just been promoted to her, potentially her new Supreme Commander, because it isn't anybody else. She doesn't have now a Travis polished experienced, seasoned officer that she can actually send out to do these sorts of jobs. I see it as very similar, and this isn't a, look, this is the 1980s, because this is something that happened later on in in history, but the Russian army following the fall of the Soviet Union, where it was very much a case of, look, the economy's gone to pot, there's massive unemployment, if you're going to pay me a wage to be in the army, I'll be in the army, but it's only as long as you pay me a wage. Probably also, during the 70s and 80s, you have those conflicts in Africa and in the Middle East. You do get the rise of those, not just mercenaries, but those sort of private contracting companies who will just take over the situation and run the thing on the ground for you. So sort of like a sandline-type operation. Yes, there are definitely some real-world precedents that we can 
draw from there. Remember, you will be my supreme commander if you succeed. And your ship will be the liberator. That, Madam President, is why I'm going at all. That and my personal loyalty to you. Quite. I want to raise the scene where Servalan and Mori confront the Pyroans because I found that a very odd scene. First of all, Servalan seems to kill the Pyroans. My take was just to again remind the audience that she's a really bad person, mm. particularly after we've had Aftermath where she's flirting with Avon and all yep. the rest of it. This is now to remind them, no, she's actually a... She's a bitch. She's yeah. a bitch. She's, a, she's willing to murder people. And also the way the Pyroans don't run, just to call back to our last segment... Is this pacifism so powerful that their entire survival instinct has been suppressed? Suppressed, yeah. which is maybe necessary if you're a cult leader who wants to wipe them out at some point. For, for sure. I guess probably with, with the killing them part, see, I read it more maybe as she's trying to cover up the fact that she's actually landed on Obsidian as long as she can. And by the time anybody notices that Milis and his brother are missing her plane will be too far advanced. Yeah, maybe. Again, coming back to your idea that the director is a bit of a, look, this will do, I don't think the real intent of that scene comes through. No. And, and probably in, in terms of why they don't run, I think it is, yeah, they've lost all their natural instincts. They were like tame animals. Is it like the dodos not knowing how to fear man? Yeah. It probably also ties into that reaction of Dana's where she says that limiting aggression and that side of human nature means people will die of boredom. They're just so utterly useless now that they can't even defend themselves when a guy's pointing a gun at them. Yes. Servalan, of course, is not useless. We're now back to really season one Servalan mm. where her prime goal is to take the Liberator. Yes. In this case, wanting to use it to rebuild her fleet and rebuild her power. She also mentions that Obsidian is strategically important, which suggests maybe she's at a point where she's ready to start expanding. I don't know that Obsidian was probably ever really a Federation world, so maybe there's some other group operating in the, in the area here and she wants to deny them access to whatever strategic importance Obsidian has. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've established fairly well in the Blake 7 universe that the concept of supply lines and supply chains is, important. is still important, even with the space fleet. And therefore, you can imagine that having Obsidian as an operating base yep. to expand your power projection would be important. So I think that makes sense. It's stated outright here that Mori will be her supreme commander if he succeeds, which mm-hmm. does suggest that the elite military either was killed in the war or is not with Servalan. No. We sort of, again, get that idea that she's much more involved in the operation here. I kind of almost got the impression she's there to keep an eye on him, make sure he doesn't get any ideas about actually taking the Liberator for himself. He, as we said, is very clearly keeping one eye on what he can get out of the situation. Absolutely. He is, however, successful in getting up to the Liberator. Yep. Villa gets to be stupid for a moment and bring him up in a way that really was a bit cringeworthy, I've got to say. Yes. Villa also gets to be stupid by not realising that the Federation's attacking, which, again, it, it's just a quite eye-rolling sort of scene, unfortunately, and not a good scene for Villa. <laughs> the stupidity seems to be contagious, though, because the, the actual plan doesn't make a lot of sense. Mori gets up onto the Liberator, at which point the battle fleet tries to destroy the Liberator, you would think that they would wait for a signal for Mori to say, 
I've got the ship, or at least give Murray enough time to take the ship before they move in and get blown up. Yeah, I don't know what the plan there is. I don't know whether it's a, they'll attack the ship at the same time he teleports on the idea that the crew maybe will have their hands full, which will make it easier for him to take them over. Look, that's a nice attempt, Richard, but <laughs> if you're short of ships and manpower, <laughs> allowing the Liberator to take a couple out to distract them, when you're putting a crew I just think it doesn't work. Yeah, because they only fire one shot in the initial run, so I, it's more to distract the crew than anything else. Yes, but they wouldn't have lost ships if they'd just allowed Murray to take the ship. No, indeed. There's also the thing where he says they're coming in to surround the Liberator, so mm. any flight path they take is going to put him in the line of fire, but I don't know what's actually meant to happen then if Murray doesn't signal that he's taken the ship, whether they're just going to give him five minutes and then just open fire on Yeah, it's not bad as a piece of television, but it doesn't really work when subjected to the strict analysis of two sad fanboys 40 years later, (laughs) which, you know, is a theme that we've encountered a lot across this podcast. Yeah, I am going to call out a quick blooper here. Mori plus three troopers teleport up, but when Callie's trying to give her telepathic warning to Avon, she says there are three of them. That's true. Is Avon ignoring Callie or just busy and can't listen to her? I read it more that he was focused. Yeah, on the incoming ship, so he's not really, he's not a telepath himself, so he probably has to be concentrating perhaps or open to receiving her thoughts. Yeah, that's probably fair. Probably the weakest scene in the episode needs to be mentioned at this point, and that's the staging of the battle on the flight deck, with Paul Darrow just sort of ducking behind a chair, jumping up and shooting, ducking again, shooting. That is pantomime-esque. It that is. was terrible. It's very that'll do. Either that, look, I don't know, maybe it was 5 to 10 on the last night of recording or something, so it's like, look, we've just got to get this done. Yeah, that is woeful. Impressive. Yes, he's very efficient. But then so is the whole ship. The greatest single factor is our armament, together with our main computer, Zed. As targets bear, main blasters will fire. 9-0, full thrust. Confirm. Once given the order to attack, Zen does take out a number of ships very, very easily. This, to me, indicated either or both that the pursuit ships are inferior in design to what we've seen in the past and all that the crews are far less talented than before because this is a much easier takeout of several pursuit ships than we've seen before. For sure. We're talking about the Pyroans not running. These guys don't seem to take any evasive action either. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, it's a fun little scene, and you get yeah. to see the power of the Liberator again, which is really cool, but it does seem to reflect very poorly on the Federation. We quickly take control of the Liberator again. Mm-hmm. At this point... More stupidity. Villa puts a teleport bracelet on Kelly. He says because she'll be safer... That, to me, just feels like a script contrivance. Yeah, you notice that the bracelet actually falls off as Maury pushes her into the teleport bay. That's true. <laughs> so, but I, I don't know what really is going on there. Self-preservation? There doesn't seem to be any sort of rational reason for it. Unless it's some sort of really convoluted logic to send her along with Aurak, so Maury doesn't escape entirely with Aurak, but I... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems to want to say that he's trying to save her from the ship maybe being destroyed. Because he does afterwards say, oh, I hope I was right. But it, it's really badly done. It's another example of potentially just another idea that 
hasn't quite come through as the writer intended in the script. No, and very much another that'll do when we're recording it. Speaking of settling for that'll do, at this point, Servalan basically gives a, well, I'm no worse off, so I'm going to call that a win. The crew without Blake have no political ambition, so I'm off. Without that ship, we've lost a strategic advantage. Madam? But no one else has gained it. Without Blake, the Liberator's no immediate threat to our plans. No, Madam President. Well, the crew have no political ambitions. They are merely criminals. So they'll keep. Until the rule of law has been restored. Until my rule of law has been restored. With 30 minutes to go in the episode, I noted. And it turns out that's not what she's going to do because she realises that the Federation commandos have got Orac and Kelly, so that's worth coming back for. Yeah, I guess maybe at that point she realises she's failed and, look, continuing with her plan is going to waste more resources she probably doesn't have. So no one else has got the Liberator and the crew probably aren't going to bother me, so I can call this a win. Yeah, and I'm not knocking the scene. Servlan is actually very political in this and and again it does reinforce that idea that she is down on resources mm. she she isn't the relentless ruthless space commander we're used to no i did have the point here that she's clearly been following the movements of the crew and monitoring mentions of blake as well because she obviously knows that they haven't found blake so she's able to send the rumor and clearly expects that the crew will follow it. Yeah, and I quite like this idea that they may be leaning into of seeing how effective Serverland can still be without the resources she's previously had. I think it's a lean-in. We're not there yet. I'm interested to see how that progresses. Sure. A couple of quick notes here. Orac, once again, is shown to have absolutely no loyalty to the crew. (laughs) (laughs) Orac obviously can't move itself and can't control others to do its bidding. So he's quite willing to engage clearly with anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's quite a nice little character moment for Orac itself. We then, again, sort of get these script contrivances of, well, we need to have the big dramatic conclusion. Yep. So we need Servland to try and attack the Liberator and destroy it now. We need Servland to land on the planet so Howard can go through with his Kool-Aid. Yep. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we need to have the big confrontation. And, and look, the episode's called Volcano, so we want so, to see the volcano. We want to see the volcano, and someone has to fall into the volcano. I don't think you know we could have done anything different here. Look, it's it's a perfectly effective, dramatic end to the episode. It ties it all up with a nice few action beats. It ties the themes up fine. I think the ending kind of comes out of nowhere, but that is also again a product of us sitting here watching it forty years later. Yes. On first watching, that would be a perfectly acceptable dramatic ending. Is it a little bit the case of, as you've said, Richard, that'll do? Mm. Probably, but it does work. It just doesn't stand up to our critique. No. I guess being nice, you could say she comes back once she realises Maury's got Aurak, so she's going to salvage something out of the situation. And he very clearly expects to be paid for having taken Aurak, and he's done something positive, so he'll probably get a few brownie points or something for that. But it's also clear she wouldn't have gone back for him if he didn't have one. No, not, not at all. And I think he knew that as well. Yes. 
with her suddenly wanting to destroy the Liberator, she's worked out that she's not going to board the ship a second time. And, you know, she doesn't know they're low on power. So I guess destroying it again is, is a win because nobody else has got it. And attacking the ship means no one's going to interfere with the attack on Obsidian. Plus, she obviously thinks she's going to get Aurak. Yes, someone has to be thrown into the volcano. And we will see Dana with hidden explosives again. Yes. <laughs> but I guess that sort of leaves it as the point, really, where is Servalan at the end of the episode? Certainly she's down a few ships and a potential Supreme Commander. She is definitely worse off at the end of this episode, and she didn't start in exactly a position of strength. No, and clearly she's still got a fair way to go to overcome resistance and rival groups and whatever and establish her rule of law on the galaxy. We are, thank goodness, now at the end of the episode. The Federation have launched an attack. We do not intend to give in. We will not be colonised by the Federation or by anybody else. We will honour our sacred vow. Withdraw immediately. We bid you farewell. What was that about? Zen, put up the force wall. Confirm. So yes, a couple of quick general plot points I wanted to discuss before we go into production notes. Yep. I did note that even though we're very early in the process of throwing together Season 3... We have already had a callback to Hal Mellonby from yep. the first episode, which was nice. The ending is definitely a wow moment. A whole planet, colony, race, whatever you want to think of them as, blows themselves up. Yeah. Serverland obviously just wants to obliterate their base, I think, before they've got a chance to hit the button. But how, as clearly as we flagged a bit earlier, seems to think that their heroic death proves his way is right. Yeah, the scriptwriter seems to think that a very profound thing has happened here, and certainly the way that Callie gives her little soliloquy. I didn't believe they'd do it. Neither did Seven. She just didn't care. Her options were to take it or to destroy it. Either way, she won. I don't think so. She lost, and we lost. Only the Pyroans won. That does feel like it's sort of the word of the author there and that you know, this is a very profound thing I took it much more as a very crazy cult leader has just wiped out a bunch of victims yeah the crew sort of all have differing opinions on it as you said Callie gets to, to sort of they made a noble sacrifice that sort of almost fanatical thing they went out on their own terms they won bowed to no man and they won they won yeah Dana and Tarrant really, having actually been down there and more, they honestly just didn't believe he'd do it when push came to shove. Avon, being Avon, gets to be more rational and cold about it. Ultimately, in the big picture, the Pyroans don't matter. Servalan wins either way. So why are we wasting any time on these people? And yeah, as you said, Villa really just shows his survival instinct. At least slavery means you're still alive. Yeah, I'm with Villa. So... An episode where there is a lot going on, there is some potential subtext there, but I don't think the script really leads into it. Whether that's the writer, whether that's the production team, the director, I'm not quite sure. Yep. As we said at the start, I think our headcanon is perhaps more interesting than, <laughs> than, 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 than what was in this story, and that's yes. quite unfortunate. We've got some production notes. We did promise we would come back to the real reason why we've no longer got Blake and Jenna on the ship. Yes, 
Before we do that, one quick note. The exterior scenes of Dana and Tarrant teleporting down and running around on Obsidian, they're actually Josette Simon and Stephen Pacey's first recorded work on the series. Okay. Because, of course, we do the location work before we do anything else. So that's their very first scenes they filmed on Blake 7. But, of course, they are replacement members of the cast. Yes, so we will get to why Blake and Jenna are really gone. Well, let's do Jenna first. Yes. I will say, look, this obviously is covered elsewhere, so you can do more reading on this. We'll give our shout-out to Making Blake 7. They had quite a detailed breakdown of this, which I think sadly has been archived. But now I see that they're doing books, which I am very excited about. Yes, likewise. It will be covered in there. Yeah, so Selina Vett's probably the easier one. Everybody knows she was disappointed with the role of Jenna and she wanted to leave after the first series, but the BBC waved her contract at her. She was offered a new contract, but clearly, I'm done, I'm out, goodbye. There really is no more to the story than that. She was unhappy and she walked. Yes, and did end up going off to do some more academic work. Yes, Gareth Thomas. Yes. There's a little more to the story there. He apparently was keen to direct an episode or two, which I think was sort of starting to become a bit more common in US TV, but rule-bound BBC, no. We did touch on this a bit in the Series 2 discussion. After meeting a couple of former RSC colleagues at the BBC, probably most prophetically Trevor Nunn, who was a very highly regarded RSC and National Theatre Director, and he's now Sir Trevor Nunn. He was offered another contract at the RSC, which he felt clearly offered him the chance to be a real actor. He combined that with the thought, probably, that the character of Blake pretty much had developed about as far as it was going to go. He was keen to get back into the theatre, so he declined a new contract as well. Yes, I think it's really worth stating overtly. We are very much still in that era where television is by far the weak cousin of all the dramatic arts. Yes. It is inferior to film. It is certainly inferior to the stage. And even to radio. And even to radio, yes. It's the one you do if you can't get other work. It's the stuff really the uncultured masses watch. Yes, and you you just do it for the cash. You don't do it for the art. No. And there are a number of anecdotes of people that Gareth Thomas held in very high regard really being quite rude and snooty and Mm. uh, belittling of his work on Blake 7. Sean Phillips, who, look, is a wonderful actress and amazing in like Claudius, but there's the example of him meeting her at the BBC and she's just like, I can't believe you're doing this. You are so much better than this. Mm. It's also worth noting, of course, that this is leading to a bit of a fallout with the cast. Now, different cast members are more or less circumspect about their comments, but Paul Darrow has been quite open about saying, well, we all had a contract to do a show called Blake 7. Blake wants to walk. Uh, what happens to the rest of us? Yes. You know, that could be considered a bit selfish. Obviously, it worked out well for Paul Darrow. It he, worked out quite well for Paul Darrow, it, I think. It, it, it did, but I think that there was probably an element of hostility that mm. probably didn't help with that decision either. But this podcast is designed to discover the show as we move along, and this yep. is the point, I think, where... It is now abundantly clear, if it wasn't already, Blake and Jenna are not coming back. Avon is now the lead. Yep. But Tarrant is in the background. For sure. At the time, the UK press did cover the story that Blake 7 Series 3 would be without Blake. In both cases, Gareth Thomas and Sally Nevette advised the BBC that they were not intending to return or decline their contracts around the time trial was being rehearsed and recorded. Both Hostage and Countdown were recorded after this, which is where you get that anecdote that Tom Chadbon and apparently John Abeneri, there was that idea that they could become replacement Blake characters. 
And the other, of course, knock-on effect of this is with Gareth Thomas leaving, there is now no need for the Travis character. And so, of course, Star 1, he's written out. Absolutely. So, look, that is just a bit of a look at how the real world was affecting our universe. Yep. But now on to our regular segments. Okay, so we'll kick off our guest cast with the obvious one, which is Michael Goff. He has a very long career, over 60 years of regular appearances on stage and screen. Unfortunately, look, we're probably not going to do his career justice here. Looking at his genre roles, we'll do the obvious Doctor Who ones first. He is in The Celestial Toymaker, and of course he has a later role in Ark of Infinity. And he was contracted for The Nightmare Fair, which was abandoned when the show was cancelled initially in 1985. Yep, he's Alfred Pennyworth, the butler, in all four of the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batman films from the 90s. And he did voices in a couple of other Tim Burton animated things as well. Plus, he was also in Sleepy Hollow. He's in two episodes of The Avengers, uh, most notably as the inventor of the Cybernauts. Yes, it's a very cool episode, that one. Yes, he's Leo Tolstoy in Young Indiana Jones. He's also in Moonbase 3, but we might just move on. (laughs) Having said that, he is in the best episode of Moonbase 3, but... That's true. Look, his first role was in 1946 in the TV movie Androlocles and the Lion... He did a lot of play-for-today drama-type stuff in the 40s and 50s. Uh, He was in the 1960 Adventures of Robin Hood, the 1960s Count of Monte Cristo. He was Mr. Bennett in the 1950s Pride and Prejudice. He's in Treasure Island in 1968 as the Squire. He turns up in Brideshead Revisited. He's done a lot of very, very big dramatic stuff. And his final credit was in 2011 in Katerina's Nightmare Theatre. He is, of course, also in a number of Hammer and Amicus, those 60s and 70s horror movies at different times. We are leaving aside his huge body of more mainstream work, including winning a Tony Award for a season on Broadway in one of uh, Alan Akeborn's farces. Probably a couple of personal ones just quickly from me. He was in Sleepers, which was an early 90s miniseries starring Nigel Havers and Warren Clark, the two Russian agents who were reactivated after about 30 years. Okay. Yep. And he was also in Top Secret, which is a Zucker Abrams movie from the mid-80s. They're the guys who did Flying High and later went on to do The Naked Gun. Okay. But yeah, yeah look, an outstanding career. We haven't done it justice. No. He did a lot of work. He did. He was also a conscientious objector during World War II when he served in one of the non-combat units. The other Doctor Who link, of course, is his third wife was Annika Wills, who played Polly in 60s Doctor Who. Uh, he was married to her between 1962 and 1979. You can probably read her autobiography for her version of how that turned out. Yes, there's some not pleasant stuff there that, uh, like Alan Lake a couple of episodes ago, if you want to know more, you can go and look that That's up. where you can look at it. And he passed away in 2011 at the age of 94. Yes. So, look, we really haven't done justice to his career there, but no. definitely one of the more established actors to appear sure. in Lake 7. It would have been a big get for them. It would have been a big get, and it would have been a, you know, that's that guy actor. For sure. For the audience. With less credits, we have Malcolm Bullivant playing Bersha. He really only did a few things sort of across the late 70s, early 80s. A couple of things that I've picked out there. He was in Secret Army, a very good series I've recently rewatched. He was in the 1972 War and Peace, and he was in Superman 4. He does have a role in Superman 4. He seems to have had a slightly longer career on stage, but his later work, actually, he moved out of acting. He sort of stayed in the industry, but he worked later as a casting director. We move on then to Ben Howard, who was Maury. He's actually in quite a bit of stuff, yes. uh, probably from the mid-60s through to the mid-80s. Again, we'll go with the Doctor Who credit. He is Hinks in the Green Death. He's the bloke who comes to steal the egg and gets bitten by the maggot. 
<laughs> and if you don't know that story, that would have been a very weird sentence, but it is accurate. <laughs> um, he has a regular role in the final series of Dixon of Doc Green, which incidentally I discovered is the only one that survives in its entirety. Yes, he was Detective Constable Clayton in 10 episodes. Mm. A couple of quick ones from me. He has a recurring role in Prospects, uh, which was a series I remember quite enjoying at the time, that sort of late 80s, very early 90s, uh, starring Gary Olsen. He also has a, a recurring role in a kids' series called The Flockton Flyer. It's a series about a steam train and the family who run it, which is a series I must be, I remember quite enjoying as a kid. Okay. He does lots of parts as policemen, and soldiers, he's in stuff like Zed Cars, he's in The Sweeney, he's in Target, he's in The Professionals, he's in Dempsey and Makepeace. Yeah, he's in seven episodes of Zed Cars playing six different roles. Yeah, plus he does the rounds of series like Minder and Lovejoy. He's also in Jemima Shaw Investigates, which I remember with Patricia Hodge from the late 80s. Yeah, look, just a couple of roles I want to point out there. He was in Department S which again leads into yep. that stuff you were talking about. He did have a role in Oh, What a Lovely War. Yes. Which is obviously a quite classic film. And he went on, 1988, he was in William Tell. Oh, yeah. He was also in Who Dares Wins with Lewis Collins from The Professionals. He was also in A Bridge Too Far amongst the war films. And he was also in The Land That Time Forgot, which is one of those dinosaur movies with Doug McClure. And right. a very young Anthony Ainley. Right, okay. Yes, and probably just the final point for him, away from acting, he apparently owned the company that produced the Benji board, which was a UK-made skateboard, which apparently was very popular amongst the skateboard scene in the UK during the 70s, and I believe is actually now quite sought after by collectors. There you go. So there you go. He had a whole other life away from acting. The fleet commander is played by Alan Bowerman. Again, not a huge number of credits, but no. I did point out... He was in Some Mothers Do Have Him. He was in The Borgias, which was obviously a quite yeah. prestige series at the time. He did some work in The Counter of St. Thomas's, and he did turn up in a Two Ronnie sketch. Right. I know that he was also in Riley Ace of Spies, which I remember watching at the time. I think he had a bit more of a career on stage. He was in one of the stage productions of The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. Oh, okay. But, yeah, he doesn't seem to have had a very long career at all. Someone who did have a very long career, but only has a very minor part here, so we're not going into too much depth, was Judy Matheson, who plays the mutoid, the speaking mutoid. She has credits from 1967 to 2021, and I think that she's still going. She is. She was the star of a number of UK horror films across the 60s and 70s, which I think with the revival of interest in that genre now has opened up a whole lot of new appearances in documentaries and at fan events and that sort of stuff. Again, look, she did the rounds of series like The Professionals, The Sweeney, she's in Zed Cars. She also had a very short stint in Crossroads, which was a UK soap. Now, I don't think we ever got Crossroads here, but it was apparently notorious as a really low-budget ITV soap opera, and I think it was actually seen as being a bit of an actor's graveyard. It was. She did 13 episodes of that. Yeah. Just quickly on Crossroads, the guy who helped create that, Reg Watson, he was Australian, and he later returned to Australia and created such well-known series as The Young Doctors, Sons and Daughters, Prisoner, or Prisoner Cell Block H, if you're uh, in the UK, and The Venerable Neighbours. There's a lot to answer for. <laughs> and finally, of the speaking parts, Milus, played by Russell Denton. Again, not a lot of credits, but I did pick out All Creatures Great and Small, The Liver Bird, and The Pickwick Papers. Yep. And a couple of mentions, because we did say we're going to be very thorough with our Doctor Who references. Karen Birch plays the uncredited background Pyroan, and she was the uncredited background girl technician 
in the Day of the Daleks, and she had the credit of woman watching show in Snake Dance. And Rodney Cardiff, who's an uncredited Federation trooper, was an uncredited draconian guard in Frontier in Space. Ah, which means he was wearing those masks John Pertwee loved so much. That's right. We'll move on then to, look, it was the 1980s. A couple of things I just wanted to pick out here. Android is very 1980s. It feels very post-C-3PO. And it's been done on a very 1980s budget. It's sort of, yes, yeah, C-3PO almost done on the budget that Tomorrow People, I think, just about. It's really bad. It's really bad, but very 1980s. I think the two lights of groin level as well don't help. They don't. Howard eats some green stuff, which is very 1980s. We get a mention of Federation teletext. Oh, yes, how they've been following the situation. Yep. Yes. The direction of the fading running in and out, is oh, yes. that just meant to be time-lapse, or is that meant to be... Something else. I thought it was time-lapse. I mean, that's sort of almost like that Monty Python thing. The character, (laughs) the first minute of the sketch, watching the character getting closer. A real-world one I had. We've mentioned several times that Power has comparisons to a cult leader. We're not all that far removed, really, from Jonestown. I picked up on that as well. And certainly, if we are correct in our interpretation that the writer was leaning into the idea of Howard being more of a cult leader than a benevolent ruler ruler or anything like that, then obviously Jonestown is a very important touchstone. Uh, That was the massacre of 909 people in Guyana. That happened on the 18th of November, 1978. And so it was very, very much in the world. I mean, that's only about 12 months before this would have been written. So it was very much around. Going back a little bit more, I think there was still a taste of the Manson family and the murder of Sharon Tate from 11 years before that. Yes. That was certainly around. And look, it's something that was very much in television and fiction at the time. Yep. The occult, the cult, even the goodies sort of lent into that on a couple of occasions <laughs> in a slightly different way. Now, we haven't had a Rumpole cast member mentioned for a while, but I'm going to get a Rumpole reference in here because Rumpole's Return, both the book and the TV show of which were written in 1980, so very much a contemporary volcano, yep. that also deals with cults and that sort of thing so it obviously was in the water around the television production at the time sure liberated database i just noted here the pyroans technology is considerably more advanced than what the federation has their scanners are better they have android technology look we joked about it not being well realized but it's technology we haven't seen in the federation before other than avalon i suppose Avalon looked a lot better than that. Yeah, very, very different application. So, yeah, okay, look, that's a good pull. You maybe pulled the rug out from under me there, but it's (laughs) it's not something we've seen a lot before. No, for sure. And we get a reference to a Federation Central Science Complex where both Howard and Hal Mellonby went, and you get a medallion when you graduate. That's right. Probably the other note in the universe building, we're told that the area around Obsidian saw three major battles during the Galactic War. Again, not clear whether that's the conflict at the end of Star 1 or this is whatever spilled on from that afterwards. But clearly it is somewhere that is strategically important then and remains important now. Very much so. What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? My favourite, and it's only two lines, is very much the reply to Villa's You did very well, I must say, with must you. (laughs) The other one that I did pick up was... uh, Dana says the people are friendly, but then sometimes one's friends can be more of a liability than one's enemies. <laughs> One for Serverland I had, where she's having the conversation with the mutoid about the long-range sensors are registering a volcanic tremor on obsidian. And Serverland says, well, that's quite right, it's normal. Maury said, you're quite sure about that, I suppose. Of course I'm sure. I'm going there, aren't I? <laughs> 
One other one I did have actually for Avon was where they're talking about Dana. Oh, yes. And putting Villa down. And Kelly says, Dana's, well, she's pretty for one thing. And Villa says, pretty? Oh, yes, I suppose she is. I hadn't really noticed. We've seen you not really noticing frequently. (laughs) One other one just quickly I did pull out where they're talking about not being able to get Avon back from the planet. Villa says, communications blind spot. Maybe he landed in the volcano. No, I think he's all right. Yes, of course it is. There isn't a volcano alive that would dare to swallow Avon. <laughs> oh, be quiet, Villa. He's cold enough to put out the fire anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the immortal quote, My son, the animal rules you. <laughs> Another one that's had a bit of a, uh, a go at the pub very late at night over the years. But, yeah, not a huge zinger episode. No, not really. But, look, again, even on Week of Blake 7, thank you, Chris Boucher, there's always some good lines. <laughs> This next segment is, of course, what happened next. In the case of the Pyroans, well, they're all dead. Yes. So, so not a lot. Nothing there. We've covered, I think, Servalan rebuilding. I assume she wants the Liberator still, and this could well yep. become an ongoing thing. And, and look, whether she attempts to come back to Obsidian and put some sort of base there after whatever's happened, happened, maybe? Yeah, very much so. But I, th- I think that there's a ongoing thread there about Servalan rebuilding that for sure I expect the series is going to lean into and also we've touched on this idea of where does the cast go post Blake we've spoken about that in universe and the growing tension I think between Avon and Tarrant which is very different to the tension between Avon and Blake yeah and look we're only three episodes into the season so I'm sure that's got plenty of time to unfold yeah absolutely but again for an episode that we're not hugely big on Mm. There are signs of a developing, ongoing narrative, and that's a very positive thing. Yeah. Well, we're now at the end of the episode, so it's time for our Player of the Week. Richard, it's your turn to go first. Yes, this might be a bit interesting, this one. I'm going to start by saying, look, I had an honourable mention for Michael Goff, purely simply because it's a bit sort of like Julian Glover, I think, in Breakdown in the first season. Look, he is a good enough actor to at least add a bit of gravity or that word gravitas to the role of Howard but as I said earlier I suspect this one might not have made it onto the resume. Yes he does a very credible job in this episode. Yep and look I'm actually going to say I've gone for a bit of a cop out this time. I gave it to Stephen Pacey and Josette Simon because I think whatever else they don't get some sparkling dialogue but they really do throw themselves into this and they are quite enthusiastic about sort of what's going on. Well, we've got half a snap there. Half a snap. And I'm going to say, I don't think it's a cop-out because I actually gave my player of the week to Stephen Pacey. Yep. And the reason being for someone who's only been in one episode so far and for whom, as you highlighted, several of his filming scenes are the first work he did, he is actually very, very effective at establishing his character. You wouldn't know that this is very early, you know, really at the start of his acting career. No, he's dived right in. He's dived right in. He's very effective He's already lining his character up as a rival to Avon. Mm. And I think that that actually is quite commendable. So, yeah, I'm, I don't think it's a cop-out. I'm giving my award to Stephen Pacey. There you go. Well, listeners, look, again, it's not been our favourite episode, but hopefully we've had some interesting discussions there. And, and I think, look, it does highlight that even with Week of Lake 7, there is stuff of merit in there. For sure. Having said that, I watched this three times for the podcast and I suspect it will be a while before I watch it again. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's probably not one I'm going back to again either. But I must admit, I did enjoy rediscovering it for the podcast because I I haven't seen it for a long time and I did spot things that I hadn't spotted before. That's true. So yeah, it's been a worthwhile experience. 
But next week we are on to Dawn of the Gods. Mm. So set course for the domain of the Tharn. Crandor. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Never mind. We're still here.